Hi everyone, my name is Project Gill and I'm your host from the Aware Panel. The Aware Panel is a weekly podcast which talks about different societal issues ranging from racism, climate change, mental health, homeschooling, businesses and so much more. We believe that society needs to change and with more awareness to these topics, we continue to talk about it. If you want to be a guest on my show, please go to the website www.theawarepanel.com or even DM us on Instagram at theawarepanel. And yes, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to the next 25 episodes of Season 2 and also listen to the 25 episodes on Season 1 as we already had so many amazing people coming on. Today we have Peter. Peter is a professor, clinical researcher and author of the book Stronger. His focus for more than 20 years has been brain injury. Peter has been in the forefront of developing and testing many of the most innovative stroke neurorehabilitation recovery options, including wearable robotics, constraint-induced therapy and mental practice. And today we spoke about how people live with brain injury on a daily basis. So let's just get right into the episode, guys. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Our Rise podcast and today we have Peter who is a professor, a clinical researcher and author of the book Stronger. His focuses for more than 20 years have been a blame passivity and brain injury. He has been in the forefront of developing and testing many of the most innovative stroke recovery options and yes so Peter do you want to introduce yourself in a bit more detail? Oh, absolutely. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't um, ask you a particular question. So one of my favorite guitar players of all time is a guy by the name of Andy Gill. Are you related to Andy Gill? No, I'm not. No. Okay. Well, no, I'm I had not. to get that out. <laughs> no, it was a need to know situation. Mm-hmm. So my name's Pete Levine. I'm a clinical researcher. I've been involved in clinical research, or, or, clinical research since 1999. Um, in 2005, I wrote a book called Stronger After Stroke, which is a sort of DIY. Do you know that term DIY? Yeah, do it yourself. Do it yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. like a do-it-yourself manual for recovery mm-hmm. from stroke. Okay. And uh, that book has since gone on to three editions and multiple translations. And... Uh, and I do a lot of clinical CEU. So here in the United mm-hmm. States, if you want to be an occupational or physical therapist, mm-hmm. you have to have continuing education credits. There are courses that you have to take over the arc of your career so that make sure that you're mm-hmm. still up to date with treatment options. So I've done hundreds of those talks. I've been published mm-hmm. a lot in peer review stuff. Um, I'm also a teacher at a local community college. Um, there's a discipline here in the United States it's just under physical therapist. It's called a physical therapist assistant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I teach at that. And other than that, I mean, my bio can get as dense as you would like. We could be here all day talking about me. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering if you have any questions about brain injury and recovery that I can help. Definitely, definitely. So for our audience out there, he's kind of an expert of brain injury. So do you want to explain to everyone what kind of research do you do? Is like particularly what you specialize mainly in? So most of our work has been done in stroke. Excuse Mm -hmm. me. I swear I don't have COVID. You know what's interesting? (laughs) Today I get my second shot. 
And I have to say, I have to congratulate England. They've been really good about getting people immunized. Mm-hmm. Have you had your shot, Ms. Gill? Yes, I'm having my second yeah. shot in May. In May, really? Okay, well, good for you. You're probably half immunized now because uh-huh. you've had half dosages. I get my second mm-hmm. one today. I'm very thrilled to maybe not wear a mask so much. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm sorry. What was the question again? Um, oh, I s- yeah, kind of research? Yeah. Right. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still early here in the U.S. Um, so our research almost exclusively had to do with stroke survivors. Mm-hmm. But we would also work with people with spinal cord injury, um, whether it's a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or a spinal mm-hmm. cord injury, it's all the central nervous system. So we were sort of focused on central nervous system stuff. We would do all kinds of things. Um, our lab was most known for two things. One was something called mental practice. And um, may I ask, do you play a musical instrument? No, I don't. Do you play a sport at all? Do you have a sport? Um, I play badminton mainly, but because I have a disability, it restricts me quite a lot. So may I ask, well, I, I feel like I'm interviewing <laughs> you, but what is your <laughs> so I, um, I have cerebral palsies, which is a neurological condition, mainly and a physical disability as well. Right, absolutely. And in fact, most cases of cerebral palsy are in utero strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you play badminton. Badminton, um, yeah. Yeah. And you're on your feet when you do it. Yes. Okay. So I don't know anything about badminton. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can barely hit, is it called a shuttlecock? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, that's what it's I can called. barely hit it. Yeah, it's always <laughs> way too slow for me and I'm mm-hmm. whiffed at it. Um, one of the things that we did a lot in our lab was something called mental practice. It's what athletes and musicians do to practice when they're not actually on the field or doing the mm-hmm. performance. Um, so here's a weird thing. If you were to imagine hitting a shuttlecock with a badminton racket, let's say a backhand, just make it complicated, your brain would light up in exactly the same area as if you actually hit a shuttlecock. Mm -hmm. But there's more to it. Not only that, but the muscles involved in hitting a backhand shuttlecock would be also firing. They just fire very minutely. What we call sub-threshold we can pick it up with like electromyography surface electrodes but you can't see it you can't touch it and feel it but your muscles are active so let's review if you imagine doing a backhand the portion of the brain dedicated to the backhand would light up mm-hmm. in a very similar pattern as to if you actually did it and the muscles would fire but wait there's more so our work had to do with that that was one of many studies we did And we were really interested in that because, you know, stroke survivors, people with brain injury often can't do a lot of work. So this becomes an adjunct, stuff that they can do on their own in a quiet room. And they try to access the memory of the movement. Mm -hmm. So, um, so if somebody had a stroke, let's say you had a twin, two twins, Mr. Gill and his twin, Mr. Gill. So maybe some old uncles of yours. <laughs> and they're exactly genetically alike. I mean, they're very as similar as two humans can get. And they have exactly the same brain injury on exactly the same day. It was a miracle, but a bad miracle. <laughs> okay. So Mr. Smith one goes to gate training. That is, he works on his ambulation with mm-hmm. a physical therapist or what you guys would call a physiotherapist. Mr. Smith two works with a physiotherapist to get his gate back, but also 
goes back to a room and remembers how it felt to walk prior to a stroke. Very dedicated way, closes his eyes, quiet room, nobody bothering him. And he just imagines the arm swing and the feet going and the wind through his hair. And he does that for a half an hour. That Mr. Smith will have less falls, less fear of falling, will have better kinematics. That is the quality of movement for them. Um, walking will be better. Everything will be better um, just by mentally practicing. But then there's this new thing that has been fascinating me for a while. It's called uh, action observation. Mm -hmm. So I'm a musician. I play drums. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, I don't know if I'm a good drummer. I was in a band that was signed to a major label, mm -hmm. MTV touring, the whole thing. So I did, I did that level of musicianship. My favorite drummer of all time uh, is somebody that you're not going to know because you're way too young. You're just too young. <laughs> uh, it's John Henry Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Great British band. Mm -hmm. Okay. When we were on tour, I would always watch a video or listen to an audio of this great drummer playing. And I would sit in our big van and I would pretend to play with sort of air drums. Yeah. And I would listen to this thing and I would go to my, my bandmates and I would say, we got to go on stage now because I just listened to this guy. And I think I, I think he's literally, he's passed away. I think he's literally taken over my body and I am ready to play right now. And they'd be like, dude, we're not going on for another half an hour. So you just cool your jets. We're not going on right now. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm John Bonham. I swear <laughs> you get me on stage right now. Everything's going to be great. If you observe somebody else doing a movement, the portion of the brain dedicated to that movement in your brain will light up. And the muscles, just like with mental practice, the muscles will fire in the same order and for the same duration as if you actually do it. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways that you can practice outside of rehab that anybody can practice. You can practice, I can practice mental imagery where you imagine the movement and then action observation where you watch somebody else who's really good at that movement do the movement. So we did a lot with imagery. That was one of the things, mental practice. That was one of the things we did. Yeah. Another thing we did was something called constraint-induced therapy. And with a stroke survivor, you have a, um, I'll try to be politically correct. You have a weaker side and a stronger mm -hmm. side. I want to say a good side and a bad side. People get very upset about that. Like somehow <laughs> their, their arm is going to get very upset with them and bring them to court and sue them. Um, no, it's, it, it's a weaker side and a stronger side. Okay. Okay. In constraint-induced therapy, what you do is you constrain the stronger side, forcing use of the weaker side. Okay. And you do that over many hours a day, lots and lots of repetitions. And what we found in those studies was that those people will generally get better than a control group who doesn't do that kind of work. Now, it's a lot of sweaty ugly, hard work. Because remember, they've had brain injury. And as somebody who's had CP, you know how mm -hmm. difficult movements can be sometimes. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying yeah. conceptually, it's easy. It's easy to imagine a movement, mental practice. Mm -hmm. It's easy to tie up the good side mm -hmm. and force use of the bad side. Uh, we did a lot with e-stim. So we would have e-stim orthotics that would go all over them and multiple joints. We did um, tele-rehab. There's a, um, there's a portion 
of the United States that's very famous for having strokes because they don't have good dietary, uh, they don't make good dietary decisions and they smoke a lot. Um, it's called the stroke belt. It's in the Southern United States and where I live isn't far from there, but we did tele-rehab where we like, this was way before Zoom or anything like that, but we would set up a video link with somebody in an area called rural Appalachia and then teach them with a laptop that we gave them how to put on this orthotic and then work on their arm. And we would be 500 miles away or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever it was. What else we did? What did we do? We do all kinds of studies. It goes on and on, but that's basically what our focus has been brain injury, especially with stroke. Mm -hmm. That sounds really good. Like the way you explained, like the, what kind of research you've done is like you broke it down easily for audience to hear, especially. So, um, one of my next questions is how did you get interested in learning how to research about strokes and all the psychological meaning behind it? So, I stalked you a little bit on, on, uh, on the internet. <laughs> you went to Birmingham City University, is that yes, right? Yes, that's correct. And while you were there, you were in an organization that I've now lost on the internet. It was something it was something about empowering young people to go into their community or other communities and make cool stuff happen. Yeah. You were the president of that organization yeah. at Birmingham's this celebrity. <laughs> Now, I could easily ask you how you got into that, mm -hmm. but we all have these weird winding roads in our lives. I mean, half the stuff that I do, you know how I met my wife? She was a clinical instructor of mine in school. Now, who knew that was going to happen? It's just yeah. craziness happens in your life all the time. It's happenstance. So how did I get involved? I have um, a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. and then I have another. I went back later and got a small associate's degree in, in physical therapy. Um, so when I did that, I worked in what we, you might call a nursing home. Do you, you guys have yeah, nursing and homes, right? We call them care homes here. Care homes. That's a better word. People hear nursing home and they go, I'm not going. It's a nursing <laughs> home. I'm going to die there. Yeah. Care home. Yeah. I need a care. You know what? I think I need a care home. I would go to a care home. I don't know about nursing. <laughs> but anyway, so I started working in a care home. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I got a uh, offered a job. It was pure happenstance. And the way it happened was quite bizarre, but uh, got offered a job at the Kessler Institute. Excuse me. I don't have COVID, I swear. <clears throat> uh, and uh, it's a big rehab hospital, one of the, the highest ranked rehab hospitals in the United States. So of course I was thrilled to go there and do research. I had to pay, take a pay cut, but, um, but it was worth it. So um, basically what happened was I had a two-year contract and, um, and that turned into 20 years of clinical research and yeah. it's, still, it's still in some ways going. Um, why was I interested in it? Well, I wasn't to start with. It's just that every day meeting mm. stroke survivors and people with brain injury, you know, I, I will say this, and maybe you've met people like this. Have you ever met somebody with a brain injury? Um, who like a significant brain injury and they may be a little aphasic. They have trouble speaking and they were, they move weird. Mm -hmm. I've met many people like this and they're still smarter than I am. Mm 
Yeah. Now that pisses me off. I'll tell you <laughs> what. I don't have a brain injury. But because this person is a little hesitant with their words or they confound things, they screw things up a little bit, mm-hmm. the world at large assumes that they're dumb. And they're not. A lot of the people I met are smarter than I am after their brain injury, which again pisses me off because it seems unfair. I, sometimes I say to them, can you dumb it down a little bit? I haven't, you know, <laughs> people were smarter than me before their brain injury and yes. they're still smarter than me. Um, and when I was in school, uh, we moved a lot. My, my family mm-hmm. moved a lot. And I'm talking about 14 different schools, K through 12. And many of these moves were overseas. So every six months, my family would be moving. It had to do with the nature of my dad's work. Um, and one of the things that we now know is if you move a kid more than a couple of times during their life, the academic stuff goes down. I mean, everything gets worse. There's mm-hmm. more divorce, more suicide. I mean, I'm lucky I'm alive, more drug addiction. Mm-hmm. One of the things that goes down is academic performance. So when I was in school, everybody assumed I was dumb. You know, no teachers back in the 60s and 70s ever said, oh, well, you know, I see that you've moved a lot. Maybe that's why you're not doing well mm-hmm. in school. So when people started, when I started meeting people with brain injury and saw the way that society treated them, Hmm. it pissed me off a little bit and I felt immediate kinship with them. So that was, that was taken care of that. I felt something for these people going through this struggle because as somebody who'd been called dumb for, you know, my entire education, practically now I understood how they, they felt when half the time. And more than half the time, they weren't dumb. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they have movement problems and they might have problems with numbers or something or dates, but everything else is fine. So um, that's technically how I got the job. But why I stuck with it was because I got very fascinated with these people, especially people that were very successful at the recovery. And then I became obsessed with the human brain. And that was a whole nother story. So (laughs) I'm a... focused on the brain and all its capabilities, both for people with healthy brains and people with brain injury. Sounds good. Like what you said about how people misconcept people with medical conditions, disabilities, like people like always assume things like, oh, people with brain injury because their brain is injured. They're dumb. They're stupid. They don't know what's going on and stuff like that. Um, But in reality, it's something way different. Like for me, people assume that I can't lift stuff. I can't move as well. But really, I can do most things than most people. And it's just something that that's why I kind of created this podcast. So to speak to others, to see, to break down the barrier of disability discrimination, even with medical conditions like that discrimination, trying to break down the barrier, because bringing more awareness to something that people don't really know it's about unless you are suffering from it or you're researching into it not many people will understand necessarily would you agree to that or disagree we can't walk in other people's shoes we just can't mm-hmm. um, and we can try um, but we can't fully empathize and i think one of the things that's interesting about medical doctors is they're often staring down the barrel of somebody that is dying mm-hmm. and that person has accepted their own mortality now you're a young person you probably haven't you haven't gone through the hard work 
that it takes to realize that your days on this earth are very numbered. I have experienced something like that. Have you? Have you dealt I, with your own mortality? I was diagnosed with cancer two years ago. Um, and uh, that really made me think about my days are now shorter and things like that. But luckily I did survive it. I'm now cancer free, but back then I was kind of thinking, oh God, my days could be numbered now. And I kind of accepted that first. So I did experience something like that. But luckily, God decided to turn things around and say, well, you're living longer here, aren't you? So he decided um, I'm cancer free now, which two years cancer free is amazing. That is, well, congratulations. And Thank I, you. See, I, I made a woke mistake. I, I assumed that you couldn't mm. have possibly dealt with anything like that, but you did. So yeah, so you know that there is a couple of weeks after your diagnosis mm -hmm. where you're like, what do I do? I don't even know where I am. Mm -hmm. You know what? Here's the, this is what it feels like. And I've gone through it as well. I used to travel a lot for work. So I was on airplanes a lot. And usually airplane rides are so boring, you fall asleep. But every once in a while, you get that airplane ride where you're sure you're going to die. I had one, it was a short, what we call puddle jumper here in the United States. It was probably maybe 350 miles. So we barely break, broke through the clouds. The pilot gets on and he says, I have some bad news. So look, getting out of here is going to be really rough. And I'm just being really honest with you. We just came through it to land here. It's going to be rough. Be prepared. I'll get you there safely. So we're all like, whatever. You know, I fly every other week. I'm, I can handle this. I was white knuckled the whole time. We're gonna die. It was like, it was like literally like this. And if it's a podcast, you're not gonna see it, but I'm just like all over the place. And it was so bad that when I landed in um when I landed in Atlanta, I got some food at the food court. And the thing I noticed was I could not taste it at all. Mm -hmm. I couldn't taste the food. Like that sense it just left me for mm -hmm. about a half hour. That's what it's like being diagnosed with a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. It's like you're going to crash, but it's over a longer arc of time. Yeah. And, and so MDs don't know that feeling. I mean, unless they had cancer and survived it or they're diagnosed with a terminal disease, they're not going to know that. Mm -hmm. And they face death every day, or at least they think they do, but they don't. So we can't, we can't walk in other people's shoes. But that doesn't mm -hmm. mean we can't be sensitive to the kinds of things that they're going through. Oh, definitely. That experience alone could put people off from like doing certain stuff and something like that. Like when I was kind of diagnosed, um, it was during a time where it was I was already facing from anxiety, depression, all that like bad stuff happening to me. And then on this on top of it really made it impacted like a permanent impact on my life like because I had endometrial cancer which affects my fertility in the long run which meant like I can't produce kids and stuff like that it kind of did throw me off like I was only like 17 at the time that's really young and for a ca endometrial cancer the average age is like 45 so if you can imagine that that difference between the ages and I was told that I was one 
what out of millions of people, young people in the UK to have endometrial cancer at the age I was. And I probably was the youngest person. So it kind of did shock me in a way like, oh God, why is this happening to me? You kind of have these questions in your head and stuff like that. Um, but in reality, I was so confused on what to do. And luckily, um, my oncologist team was the best. And I luckily had my wound removed, which was very lucky of me. Um, I had chemotherapy drugs, so I didn't actually go through like the infused chemotherapy everyone sees. I went through drugs that had the same side effects. So I usually had to take some at home and stuff like that. Um, that was daunting. Um, I did lose a bit of hair, but luckily it's grew back now. Um, and stuff like nausea, like fatigue and stuff like that happened to me. Um, that's what people assume about like terminal diseases. Oh, there's only one method that could potentially treat it, but... You never know about the other stuff. For example, people thought, oh, chemotherapy will help and all these side effects. But I had the drug version of that. No, I didn't know that before I was diagnosed. And when I was diagnosed, I, I saw the effects of it. I was like, right, OK, I kind of assumed wrong. And now I'm going to accept this and let's see what happens. And it turned out those drugs did not work at all. It stayed the same size, did not grow, did not shrink, just say the same size. And that's when they decided, let's just get the organ out as a whole and became cancer free from there. So that kind of was my experience. But also, like, um, I think with stroke and something like that, um, it's something that people would have to live with. And it's I don't know how I would feel about it, like trying to do uh, live something after a traumatic experience like having a stroke and stuff like that and affecting your day-to-day -day life especially so what do you think about your opinions about how do people live after they have like a stroke for example how do you think it has affected their day-to-day -day life um, I, I will talk about that, but I have a couple questions about all that stuff that you just said. Okay, yeah. So first of all, I was adopted. So the idea that you can't have children is, uh, is not true. Mm -hmm. uh, you can have a little <laughs> baby just like me. Um, yeah, uh, very cute. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, I'm curious about like whether or not that experience with cancer um, has given you a gift of some sort a gift of empathy mm -hmm. um because you're about I to ask me yeah yeah it kind of gave me empathy in that way like um i know some family members who are very distant cousin distant relatives who had cancer and stuff like that i really empathize with that um it kind of did change my perspective as a whole so now I take every day like it's a holy day more like oh this is a waste of a day or I'm not gonna be sad like every day I don't take for granted now it's like I don't know like I feel like my days are like numbered anyways now like even after my cancer diagnosis I'm like okay this could be the last day next day could this could be the last day it depends on like that like something could happen eventually and I'm kind of I'm accepting it 
at the same time so I think that's my new perspective is like you only live, live, live once which is the acronym YOLO and that's kind of what my perspective is really so yeah may I ask and you certainly don't have to answer this but what religion are you please um a Sikh you're Sikh mm-hmm. oh okay great you know, uh, now Sikhs, I think I grew up with some, the, the men and the young boys don't cut their hair. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And they have a cool turban. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting with Sikhs because they're always confused for Muslims for mm-hmm. some weird reason. Yeah, they are. They're not, they're not interesting. Okay. Well, I'm not religious, um, but, uh, but I would, imagine there's there's some comfort there yeah so you have this gift of empathy that other people can't deal with and in fact you have it on two levels the the cp and also Mm -hmm. with regard to having faced your own mortality at such a young age um and it looks like you're using that gift so your question was how do people with stroke you know get along and Mm. what happens and and um the brain is 100 billion neurons it's a quadrillion synaptic connections mm-hmm. between those neurons. Um, there's an old saying about brain injury, any kind of brain injury, and stroke is a brain injury. If you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury because they're all different. So we could sit here and talk about Mr. Smith versus Mr. Jones, and they could be on one one guy has problems with his right side. The other guy has problems with his left side. The guy with problems on his right side has problems with language, can't understand, has trouble speaking. The guy with the uh, uh, the weakness on the left side, um, he has problems with um, cognition and he's very impulsive and he has balance problems. It can be, you name it, any deficit that you could possibly imagine from the ability to open the hand to a visual field cut can happen with a stroke or with any kind of acquired brain injury. Acquired brain injury is like car accident, gunshot wound, mm-hmm. hitting the head with a, a cricket. Is it called a, is it called a mallet? No, it's called mm-hmm. a bat. Cricket bat. A cricket bat. I'm trying to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a baseball bat. Um, any kind of mechanical thing that hits the brain, whether it's internal or external, is a, called an acquired brain injury. And they're all over the place. I mean, there's no way you can broad brush them. And, it, and I've, early in my career, I made the mistake of having a stroke survivor waddle into a room with a walker and one arm that's not working. Mm-hmm. And there, maybe they have dysarthria. That's another thing. Like aphasia, the, the difficulty speaking is one part of the brain. But then there's other people who know what to say, understand everything you're saying, but they talk like they have marbles in their mouth. It has to do with the oral motor stuff. The, the mm-hmm. movement of the mouth is difficult for them, but they know exactly what to say. And early in my career, I would make the mistake of watching them walk through the door and going, oh, wow, this person's a mess. You know, this is going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. And they're great people who know a lot about a lot of things I had no idea about. So um, it's hard to predict mm-hmm. um, what a person with brain injury is yeah. going to look like and what their deficits are going to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that makes more sense of how you approach that question. And that kind of did change what I saw now. So 
Thank you for that. And yes, so I've got one last question to ask before we wrap this up. What advice would you give to stroke survivors who's trying to recover from like a brain injury or something like that? So my career is sort of de dedicated to the proposition that once they tell you you're not getting any better um, in, mm -hmm. in brain injury, it's called a plateau. And once you don't, they, they can't measure any, you getting any better. Um, they often discharge you from therapy. This is true in England. It's mm -hmm. true in Europe. It's true in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, they kick you out of therapy. Don't believe the hype. That's when you get to work because mm -hmm. they're, they're wrong. What we found is that you can take somebody who's five years after their accident, they've plateaued. They're not supposed to get any better. They're not getting any more rehab and they will start to chip away little steps that bring them up to some point higher than they were. And that's, that may be a, a relatively small increase, but it might be enough to get them back to work, get them back to going to church, going, mm -hmm. doing things and having fun with their family, you know, all kinds of stuff. So don't give up. Uh, the brain is neuroplastic. It's mm -hmm. highly changeable happens in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, keep going and buy my book, Stronger After Stroke, available on Amazon. Great. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. Thanks. Make sure you subscribe to the Aware panel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or any other streaming platforms. And if you want to become a guest on the show, please go to my website, www.theawarepanel.com and click on Become a Guest. And yeah, so thank you everyone for listening and see you guys later. Bye. Thank you everyone for watching today's episode. I'm really glad that you loved the episode and I hope that the episode brought more awareness to you and you learned something new. So hope that's still in place. Thank you once again for listening. If you haven't already, please put a review up on our Apple podcast and show some support as well by sharing it on your social media platforms. And we have next week episode to come through. So make sure you listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. on software such as apple podcasts and spotify and other things like that so we're gonna see you in another episode guys <laughs>